We have a complicated history uh, that we've never really appreciated, uh, that we've never really tried to uh, acknowledge uh, in a very open, honest, and candid way. And we can sweep things under the rug as long as we like, but eventually it grows so large, it spills out from underneath the rug. And I think that's where we are right now in this moment. There's a saying that where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be also, right? So we think about how much have we invested in really trying to build trust with minority communities. And I would make the argument we haven't invested nearly enough because that's not what we want to do as a nation. It continues to send that message that you really don't matter. Here's an opportunity for us to kind of, uh, as a, a nation, to say all people matter, especially black lives matter, because historically they haven't mattered. We are not running a 100-yard dash. This will not be over in August, on August 15, 2020. It took 401 years for us to get to this point. It will take generations for us to get beyond this point. Before you can run a marathon, you have to first train for a marathon. We haven't even begun the training process, much less starting that marathon. So it's gonna take a lot of time. There's a social contract that we all have, that if you steal or if I steal, then the person who is the authority comes in and they fix the situation. But the person who fixes the situation is killing us. We want to take you to Minneapolis. Cities across the United States remain in a state of high tension tonight as the country braces itself for another wave of protests over the death of George Floyd. No justice, no peace! The rallies across this country, they are shouting another name as well. Breonna Taylor, who would have turned 27 today. Back in March, she was shot eight times while she slept in her bed in Louisville. How often is this happening? when it's not caught on video. Today is June 26th, 2020, and Black Lives Still Matter. The problem has always been this bad. There's always been this awful problem and you just haven't noticed it. And people are just waking up and noticing it now. The news cycle blew up exactly a month ago when George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police. Since then, millions have protested in all 50 states, 60 countries, and every continent except Antarctica. But as this media coverage of the Black Lives Matter movement tapers down, one thing is abundantly clear. This issue was not resolved. Police brutality has, is, and will continue to be a threat to livelihood, particularly for those in the African-American and the Latinx community. I mean, I, I fully expect to work a, a long career on these issues and to die still thinking that the police are um, a pretty bad institution that has a long way to go. Um, but that doesn't mean it has to be the same uh, um, you know, uh, 60 years from now when I die, uh, as it is today. And I think there is a lot we can do. So today we're going to talk about the police, about why these shootings happen, about why these officers aren't facing repercussions, about what impact these shootings have on minority communities, and about what reforms we can take. Because something needs to give, now. American police killed over a thousand civilians last year. In March alone, American police killed more citizens than Australian police have in the past 20 years. The fact that this happens nowhere else is a recurring theme in American society, but it means two things. One, that change is needed. And two, that change is possible.
On March 13th, Louisville police entered Breonna Taylor's house with a no-knock warrant. They were looking for two men allegedly selling drugs, blocks away. After mistakenly entering her house and after a brief confrontation, Taylor was shot eight times, killed while she was still in bed. On March 13th, before 1 a.m., Louisville police say three officers executed a search warrant at Taylor's apartment. Shootings like this one aren't anomalies. Late last year, Tatiana Jefferson was killed while playing video games with her nephew. In 2018, an off-duty police officer entered into the wrong apartment and, believing it was hers, shot the actual resident, Botham Jean. The sad thing is, we don't even need to tell you that these individuals were African Americans. Because even if you didn't know their names and stories, you know that this could only happen to them. Let's get one thing out of the way. African Americans are two and a half times as likely to get killed by police than Caucasians. One in 1,000 black children is killed by police, and it is one of the leading causes of death in black youth. African Americans make up 13% of the population of this country, yet are subject to 43% of police shootings. Something doesn't add up. Why is that? We asked a leading expert in police community relations that very question. My name is Brian Williams. I'm an associate professor of public policy in the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. Is it that all cops are racist? Is it that they don't receive enough training and have implicit bias? Brian Williams thinks it's bigger than that. Is it the apple? Is it the barrel? Or is it the tree? Right? When we think about what's taking place, my argument is it's the soil. American soil has been contaminated with racism, white supremacy. That's what it was founded on. So I don't care what seed you plant into it, you're going to have some of those contaminants bearing fruit, right, in the fruit bearing kind of process. What we have to do is kind of consider how best to mitigate this contaminated soil and how it impacts the apple, the tree, and the barrel. Which explains why Rayshard Brooks was killed in Atlanta earlier this month for falling asleep at a Wendy's drive-thru, and why Elijah McLean was killed by police in Aurora, Colorado for wearing a ski mask because he was anemic and cold. There's something else that enables police to use force so readily. Men in Kevlar vests and helmets, camouflage, carrying automatic rifles, moving in tactical armored vehicles. These aren't American troops on the battlefield, but police in Ferguson. There's your formula, a country with 400 years of racism protected by heavily armed citizens, because yes, police are citizens, but it doesn't always seem that way. In recent years, police have become antagonistic to communities. You could have some representation, but if the culture of the organization is not one that really uh, embraces, leans into, values that those diverse lived experiences, uh, they end up not representing black or brown, they represent blue because we think about the socialization process of becoming an officer, it's pretty intense. It's pretty intense. Uh, within that kind of academy experience, they tell you that you're blue, that blue matters, right? But in reality, beyond those con confines, um, we live in a complicated world where race matters. Uh, we are not, um, you know, a post-racial society. I don't think we ever will be. Uh, we have to acknowledge that, that race matters. It is a power dynamic. Police are the only entity in America capable of taking your rights and your life away. They enforce the laws, and this power has led to a number of concerning measures. For millions of Americans, the sight of a policeman instills a sense of calm, faith that order is being kept, that the good guys are watching. But for many others, 
Thousands stopped on the streets of New York because they look or act a certain way. Encounters with the blue and white breed fear, frustration, and anger at a force that some say is bent more on intimidation than serving and protecting. So here's my co-anchor, Bill Weir. Please put your hands up against the wall. It's the kind of scene that could play out on any given day in any city in America. Your hands against the wall. Men in blue stopping young men of color. Why am I being When we think about proactive policing, it's, it's like trying to prevent things from happening, right? Which is a good thing, right? But it's based upon an assumption. And that assumption is one, those who are act, acting proactively, they have all of the information. They understand all issues. I'm a big proponent of being proactive, but in a coactive way. It's a vicious cycle, because the more people mistrust the police and the police mistrust people, the more encounters become fatal. This is especially true in minority and low-income areas, where police officers are outsiders. One thing about trust, um, it's hard to gain it, but easy to lose it. It takes time to build trust. You have to be intentional. So in order to build trust, um, I think you have to go through uh, uh, four phases. And this is the kind of applied work that I do with my research in trying to kind of bring communities together. The first phase is awareness, right? And from that, you just become aware, hey, there's something going on. The second phase is understanding. The third phase is acknowledgement. And the fourth and final phase is what I call compassionate action at the individual level, but also at the collective level. But it is a process where we ultimately can appreciate the different lived experiences of those who have been marginalized. So with all these problems with the prevalence of shootings in America, you'd think that change would be imminent. The reality is, very little has changed since the shootings of Rodney King and Amadou Diallo last century. Kerner Commission writes this famous report uh, in the late 60s that criticizes um, urban police and calls attention to the poor relationships between um, police departments and in particular um, people of color. If you go back and read the Kerner Commission report right now, it sounds like it could be written about you know, the present day. Um, not, not enough has changed. Most years, the number of on-duty officers charged with murder or manslaughter is in the single digits, despite the fact that over 1,000 people are killed at the hands of police every year. Since 2005, only 42 officers have been convicted of crimes, and over that time frame, 15,000 people have died at the hands of the police. The cops in Breonna Taylor, Elijah McLean, and Alton Sterling's cases were not even charged, and only recently, after millions signed petitions in March, were the cops in Taylor's case fired. It took an eight-minute-long video of Derek Chauvin, the officer who killed George Floyd, to be charged, and even then, charges were brought about weeks later. There are several reasons why officers are protected from getting fired or arrested. Why wasn't there better accountability um, to prevent, you know, Derek Chauvin from, from being on the street that day? That's John Rappaport, assistant professor of law and Ludwig and Hild Wolf research fellow at the University of Chicago School of Law. Professor Rappaport studies policing and police misconduct. More specifically, he studies how police officers are protected and held accountable. Let's start with qualified immunity. Now, as the debate over police reform grows, a little known law came to light and it even made its way to the Supreme Court to be challenged. I'm talking about qualified immunity. So what exactly is qualified immunity? So here's the way it usually works. Um, if, if John Doe, police officer, uh, has an encounter with me on the street 
and um, it turns bad. And, you know, he ends up um, striking me, you know, on the head with his baton and I have a concussion and I, and I want to sue over it. Um, I will file a lawsuit and I will actually name officer John Doe as the defendant. Um, now I know that at the end of the day, if I win and I win, you know, $250,000, uh, that money is not coming out of John Doe's pocket, but nevertheless, the way that you uh, write your complaint and file it in court is you say, I'm suing John Doe. Now, what I'm accusing John Doe of having done is having violated my constitutional rights. I have a Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable seizures. And when he uh, hits me over the head with the baton, that's considered a seizure for purposes of the Fourth Amendment. And I'm arguing that the seizure was an unreasonable one. It wasn't justified what he did. Um, and therefore, he violated my constitutional rights. Um, that's already going to be fairly hard to prove um, because the courts are fairly deferential. They say, look, you know, being a police officer is a tough job. Um, you know, uh, Officer Doe didn't know this Rappaport guy. He didn't know if, what kind of firecracker he was. He didn't know what he was going to do. He didn't know if he was armed. Um, and so we got to be pretty deferential. But even if I convince the judge um, that he violated my Fourth Amendment rights and the judge says, all right, you know, I agree with you. He committed an unreasonable seizure that was a violation of your constitutional rights. I still cannot recover any money unless I can also prove that Officer Doe is not entitled to qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is a partial protection from having to pay out money damages that applies in all but the most egregious cases of wrongdoing. Um, the court has said things like uh, qualified immunity protects all but the plainly incompetent, right? So even if the judge says, you know, look, the officer really did the wrong thing and he really should have known better, the, the, the judge then has to ask, but is this like a really egregious case where it was clearly established in prior law that in interactions just like this one, you know, very factually similar, there's a case saying that in the interactions, just like this one, you know, if the officer hits the guy on the head with the baton, that, that violates his Fourth Amendment rights. And if we can't find a decision like that, then, you know, it's not fair to make this guy pay all kinds of money. Again, he's not really going to pay the money. The city's going to pay the money. But this is the fiction we have, right? It would be so unfair uh, to make him pay this money um, unless he had really just crystal clear notice because there was a case exactly on point where the facts were very, very similar to this one. And if we can't find that, then we're not going to make him pay. And even though your constitutional rights were violated, um, he is entitled to qualified immunity and he doesn't have to pay anything. And according to Professor Rappaport, this immunity makes it nearly impossible to try officers. Police are also protected by unions. Like many other kinds of workers, uh, police officers, it's some point in time felt like, hey, we're not being treated well. We're, we work shifts that are too long and we're not paid enough and we don't have good retirement benefits and good health care and these kinds of things. And we should do what other kinds of workers do, which is band together, um, form a union, and um, exercise our collective power to push back against um, management, which in this case would be the city or the, you could think of it as the city or the police chief or the sheriff. Um, but in addition to bargaining for higher wages and better benefits, um, they also bargain over disciplinary procedures. Now, you know, one hypothesis that's out there that I think a lot of people believe, although we haven't been able to confirm, is that part of the reason they might bargain 
over disciplinary procedures is because they can't get the raises they want. So the city will say, uh, uh, well, you know, we can't give you the $10,000 raise that you want. Um, and they say, well, you have to give us something. So if you're not going to give us the money, then give us job security. Right. Um, and so they say, we're going to bargain for these provisions in, in the contract that runs between the union that represents us as workers and the city that employs us. Um, and that's going to give us uh, job security by making it uh, more difficult um, for you to discipline us or fire us. Derek Chauvin had 18 complaints filed against him prior to the murder of George Floyd. Why was he still on the streets? Why was he still in service? There are two steps to removing an officer from service, firing and decertifying. Firing in itself is difficult. Even where police chiefs um, try to get rid of officers who are causing problems, fire them. Um, they're reinstated. In Minnesota, they're reinstated like half the time. Um, so you might even think, you know, the problem is the chiefs. We need better leadership. The chiefs aren't, you know, doing enough to, to discipline their officers. But even when they do discipline their officers, even if it's not enough, they do it sometimes. And those decisions are reversed 50% of the time um, through labor arbitration. And so there are a lot of chiefs who have been speaking out some of them are probably, you know, just finding a scapegoat, but others, I think, are very sincere in saying that um, I've been trying to clean up this department, but, um, but it's hard because the, the provisions in the collective bargaining agreement make it so difficult um, to terminate officers or to discipline them effectively. So I, I think we really need to revisit this. In April of this year, John Rappaport published in the Yale Law Journal the largest study of police hiring in history. The study, titled Wandering Officer, found some concerning information. If the, if the chief or the city is, you know, fortunate enough that they, you know, survived arbitration, they fired you after you um, committed some misconduct, they won an arbitration, you can't come back to the city, what do you do next? In many cases, the only thing you know how to do is be a police officer, right? So uh, you apply for another police officer job, right? And you go to another city. And a lot of times, uh, other cities will hire you. Um, and then you become what, in some of my research, I've called a, a wandering officer. You're an officer that's been fired by one police department and hired by another. Officers that are fired and then rehired make up about 3% of the police force. If 3% of pilots couldn't land an airplane, then there would be no airline. Many of these high-profile killings were the result of disgruntled officers who had overlooked complaints or were fired from another department. The study found that these wandering officers are, quote, more likely to be fired from their next job or to receive a complaint for a moral character violation. The problem is, these wandering officers are very hard to catch. Typically, if a police department manages to fire an officer, the next step is decertification. Police officers, like hairdressers, are certified at the state level. So what happens when a cop gets decertified? So um, to be a police officer, you need an occupational license, the same as when you go get your hair cut and you'll see the little certificate, you know, the license um, from the state board of licenses or whatever, I don't know what it's called. Um, uh, police officers have those too. And um, that licensing board in most states, but not all, can take away an officer's license. And that would actually make it impossible for an officer to go to the next town over and get another job. The National Decertification Index is a database that was set up during the Obama administration. But states don't have to comply to its standards, so it's comically empty. Only a few states actually keep track of fired officers, which makes it really difficult to study the prevalence with which this is happening. Just making things transparent isn't going to fix uh, the problems, but it does allow um, people to study them and learn more. 
um, you'd be surprised how little we know about how to improve police behavior. Um, for example, we've, you know, we've gotten very good using big data at predicting um, which kinds of officers are likely to have um, adverse incidents, we call them problems, you know, uh, use force or commit some other violation of someone's rights. And we found that at any given time in the state of Florida, there's about 1,100 of these officers on the streets. Um, and that calculates out to, you know, hundreds of thousands of interactions that civilians are having with officers who were previously fired by another police department. And remember, it's not that easy to fire an officer in the first place. Uh, we can predict this pretty well. Um, what we know very little about is, is what to do once we flagged an officer as being at risk. Um, we don't know how to get them back on the right track. With qualified immunity, police unions, unpopulated databases, and wandering officers, it immediately becomes clear why these officers aren't being fired. And then, and then we look at the behavior of the wandering officers and say, well, how does it compare to the to, um, behavior of other officers? It's not like wandering officers are the only ones who commit misconduct. Um, but we do find that they actually are fired again um, and commit misconduct um, about twice as often um, as officers who've never been fired. Um, so there's a, there's a pretty big distinction here. Uh, we think this is a problem. Um, how big of a problem, you know, we don't exactly know. We, we were able to measure the problem in Florida pretty well. There's actually reasons to think that's kind of a, um, a lowball estimate as far as what might be happening in other states because um, Florida does actually keep track of its officers really well. They keep really good data. add in racist predispositions, it immediately becomes clear why people of color are being killed by officers disproportionately. The past has a presence in the present. And what we have to really appreciate is that what's been legal or lawful has often been awful to minority populations, right, or marginalized or oppressed populations. The issue of police brutality cannot be tackled without a conversation about race. The foundations of modern American policing come from slave patrols. If we look at the history of policing as we know it, some can make the argument that we had kind of two different styles, right? The old Southern style of policing that's really embedded in slave patrols. And then with the kind of urbanization, industrialization of the Northern kind of areas, um, you had a type of uh, status quo oriented policing where they served those in positions of power to, to oppress, uh, suppress, uh, kind of control those who may have wanted, wanted some power. Uh, some would make the argument that the approach to policing today in the 21st century is based upon its 20th century thinking. And police organizations have to evolve like all organizations. They're part of an open system. But what we see is that a lot of police organizations have been somewhat hesitant or, or lagging behind the evolution of the, the community that they serve. And as a result, policing remains an institution of suppression for many. African Americans are far more likely to get arrested for minor drug offenses. The train of abuses continues mainly because those in power feel no need to reform. It's kind of sad because it's almost as if those who really study in this space, you could see that the, uh, the train is on the tracks 
and people on the tracks and a collision was about to occur at any moment, uh, but we failed to prevent it. And that's kind of sad um, because um, we knew about these issues, uh, but yet uh, I don't think uh, the broader public could really appreciate these issues. It's dangerous to think that racism has been solved or that equality is being upheld. Because when you believe something is fixed, you have no reason to actually fix it. In August of 2016, the Pew Research Institute conducted a poll. 38% of whites surveyed believe that enough change had been brought to make black and white Americans equal, while only 8% of blacks felt the same way. Since the beginning of 2020, we've seen on video a black man get gunned down while jogging, black Americans getting disproportionately infected and killed by COVID-19, a white officer kneel on a black man's neck for eight minutes, eventually leading to his death, and a young black EMT gets shot in her own bed with little to no reform in the works. I saw, you know, in Minnesota, after Floyd was killed, there were a whole bunch of bills introduced at the Minnesota legislature. And I just read, um, I think this morning, that they finished the session and they didn't adopt any of the bills. And I don't think it's because there was no desire. I think there was desire, but I think legislation takes time and they couldn't agree on exactly um, what laws to pass. And they take these recesses. So I, I worry that by the time um, we come back to session, we're really close to the presidential election, who knows what else, what other political scandals will have happened, and who knows what will be happening with COVID. And um, I worry that we'll lose the energy. And it's unlikely that predominantly white lawmakers and constituents will rally around this crisis until they actually understand what's at stake here. We need to be open. We need to be honest. We need to tell that story. Approximately 60% of white people support the Black Lives Matter movement. As Dr. Martin Luther King once said, the greatest fear for the black cause is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who prefers order over justice. How do we make sure that people uh, can uh, appreciate others who might not look like them, right? I don't know if you've ever read Ralph Ellison's book, Invisible Man, but there's a lot of relevance to it today because we still operate from these figments of our imaginations about each other, right? Instead of really accepting people as they are, humans, right? Uh, we, we, and and that's, that's the thing I think is a tremendous opportunity for us right now. How do we kind of get beyond those social constructions? How do we provide opportunities for meaningful engagement where we discover our similarities and appreciate our differences, right? You know, go back to that Latin phrase, out of many, one, right? We still have an opportunity to kind of make that happen, but it will take uh, some hard work to make it happen. But we'll propel that is what I call heart work. So hard work as heart work. So it has to come from our hearts, right? We have to learn how to see each other as humans and to, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our failures, uh, we have to appreciate each other's humanity. So yes, now is the prime time to talk about police reform and race. These events didn't start when George Floyd cried out he couldn't breathe, but they certainly have offered a time for introspection and action. So, what do we do? Defund the police. Defund police departments. Defund the police. The phrase has been circulating around for the past month, but what does defund the police actually mean? 
Brian Williams says it depends. Do you have kind of different interpretations of what it means to defund? Does it mean to divest and reallocate resources? To some, yes. Does it mean to abolish uh, police departments and others? Yes. Uh, but my position is one where I think we need to deconstruct and reconstruct police departments uh, to kind of reimagine what policing should look like. And that's a process that requires some intentional efforts to be much more inclusive. How do we get more people to the table to kind of share their views about policing? And even kind of thinking about, should we call them police officers? Should we call them peace officers? You know, one problem with defund the police is that it's a, it's a um, vague term and people read into it what they want. I think for some people defund the police means reduce the police budget to zero. It's, it's, it's another way of saying abolish the police. Um, and I just don't think, for, you know, for a host of reasons that I'm ready to go that far. Um, but I think a more, you know, moderate version of defund the police means let's take a step back and let's think about whether uh, we're asking the police to do too much and we're asking them to take care of a lot of social problems that would actually better be handled by um, other types of people with other types of training and other job incentives, right? And people will bring up, you know, uh, people going through mental health crises or people dealing with homelessness. Um, and, and I'm on board with that. I, I think that's right, that, um, you know, the police don't have to be our, um, our you know, Swiss army knife where, that we trot out for every single problem that we encounter. Um, and we can try to carve off some of these problems um, and uh, attack them through a very different mechanism and, and maybe through um, people in a different profession. And part of that might be taking some money out of the police budget and giving it to other departments. And, and to, to some extent, I, I um, am very much on board with that. But regardless of where you stand, we can all agree that too much is being spent on police. Nationally, police spending is more than double that of welfare. Much of the money saved from defunding police could be spent on solving issues in the pipeline upstream. So once you've reduced the responsibilities of the police, what do you do? For many, the answer lies in training. Police officers in the state of Georgia only have to go through 11 weeks of academy training. Most industrialized European countries require several years of study. In Georgia, barbers have longer training periods than police officers do. The precincts that do require racial awareness training, of which there are few, mandate that only one hour be divested to addressing the issue. Driver's education in the state of Georgia is 30 times longer. There's a third, less cited solution, police liability insurance. As most people know, uh, when the police hurt people, they often get sued, right? And you'll sometimes read about these big settlements, right? Five million dollars, you know, uh, in this case or that case. Um, where is that money coming from? Well, if you're talking about a big city like Chicago or Atlanta or New York, um, these cities do what's called uh, self-insure, um, which basically means they don't buy insurance on the market. They just say, we're big, we have a big enough tax base, we have enough money in the bank that when we have to pay out a couple million dollars here, a couple million dollars there, we can afford it. Um, but outside the biggest cities in the country, uh, the majority of cities nationwide buy insurance on the market. They buy liability insurance, the same way that you go out and buy liability insurance when you drive a car or when you rent an apartment, right? And this insurance covers the city's liability if its police officers hurt people and incur money damages, financial liabilities, right? Um, so if you're in a city that is insured, 
uh, and the police hurt somebody, and that somebody sues the police, sues the city, and wins, it's the insurance company that pays. Okay, so at first pass, a lot of people hear this, and, and they immediately have this intuition, even if they can't name it. They have this intuition that this seems bad, because if the city knows that it doesn't have to pay, um, then it doesn't have incentive to be very careful. Um, and that's called moral hazard. And it's a well-established phenomenon with liability insurance that um, when you promise to pay for harms that somebody causes, um, they're less careful about avoiding those harms, right? But here's the thing. That's just the, the first part of the story. The insurance companies know that when they promise to pay for all the harms that you cause, that you're going to be inclined to act less carefully. And the insurance company doesn't want you to act less carefully because then they're going to have to pay for lots of damages that you cause. They want you to behave more carefully. Then they don't have to pay much. They get to collect your premium dollars, um, but they never have to pay out, right? So that's what they want. And so they take on a financial incentive to try to, and the terminology in the industry is to, to prevent loss or to ma manage the risk, right? Basically take steps to try to make police departments behave um, better so that they have fewer payouts that the insurance company has to pay. And then sometimes in, you know, what are somewhat rare, but I think important cases, um, you know, they will wield a stick and they will say, look, if you don't shape up, um, we're going to have to raise your premiums or we're going to have to drop coverage in the extreme. And I'm not saying this is common, um, but it's sort of the, 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 you know, the sword of Damocles, it's always hanging over there. Like if we really mess up and we can't get back on track, they might drop us. And if they drop us, that could be catastrophic. Um, because we're not, remember, we're not Atlanta, we're not LA, we're not Chicago, we're a smaller city. And if we get hit with a $2 million, $4 million judgment, we're, you know, up a creek. Um, so you have this relationship between these insurance companies and these police departments. And the insurance companies are trying to help the police departments um, do better, essentially. Now, with all that said, you know, that's a little bit of a, a, a sunny version of the story. And the truth is that there's going to be variation um, among insurers. There's going to be variation among cities. Some insurers are going to be more proactive about this stuff than others. Some cities are going to be more responsive than others. Um, and so I think the, 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 what I want people to take away from this research is not that insurance companies are the solution um, to police misconduct or that insurance companies are presently today making the world so much better than it could have been. Instead, I think the lesson I want people to take away is insurance companies are powerful institutions with a lot of resources, a lot of manpower, a lot of dollars, and they're interacting with police departments every day, and they have incentives, or at least should feel that they have incentives to improve police behavior, Again, if they're not improving police behavior, if all they do is promise to, to pay, write all the checks and do nothing more, then they're actually probably making the world worse because they're creating moral hazard, right? It's like you get car insurance and they just say, we'll pay all your damages and we'll never raise your premiums, right? That's gonna make the world worse, okay? So the big lesson here is whether we like it or not, insurance companies are playing a big part in this game. They could be making the world worse, they could be making the world better. I think at present, there's probably some of each. And we should think about, in turn, how we can provide the right incentives for insurance companies 
to be the kinds of insurance companies we want them to be. Sometimes when you try to buy car insurance, you might say, they say, well, what deductible you, do you want? Um, and you might say, well, I prefer, you know, zero deductible because I'm just a student and I don't, if I get in an accident, I don't have any money. And they say, well, we can't, we can't do that. The lowest deductible we can give you is $500, right? Why? Because they know that it's important. The insurance regulators know that it's important that drivers feel like they have some skin in the game, right? And so they actually forbid in many cases insurance companies from writing zero deductible policies because they think that would make drivers behave less carefully. But we have police liability insurers writing zero deductible police liability policies, right? That's the type of thing. That's just one example of the type of thing that insurance regulators could be thinking about and thinking about whether this is um, another lever that we should be um, pulling on to try to improve police behavior. One thing you can do is get informed. Police liability insurances themselves have to be held accountable. Police settlements cost cities millions of dollars annually, and with big money, there's a lot of smoke. In many places, police departments are run with fiscal priorities in mind. People just need to educate themselves. People, you need to, you know, do you know who's writing this police liability insurance in the state of Georgia? Um, you know, I don't, uh, uh, but you could learn. You could um, write letters to the insurance commissioner to try to encourage them to be thinking about this issue. And then there's the kicker, voting. Uh, American society would have never elected President Trump if President Obama was, was not elected. Uh, I am one who kind of believes, too, in the backlash, right? Uh, and our system is one that kind of tries to correct itself. So if some feel the pendulum swings too far to the left, you kind of put these corrective measures to kind of get it back to either the center or maybe too far to the right. And I think we're in this moment right now where we're kind of grappling with where we are. Police policies are implemented at the state and local levels, but federal rhetoric matters. Funding research and databases, instituting best practices and passing legislation such as a ban on chokeholds and no-knock warrants is possible if we want it to be. These families who have suffered, they need accountability. They need people to lift up their voices to make sure their stories are being heard and so that action can be taken. The reality is that police brutality extends beyond the patrol car. If we want to try reform, it'll take the Department of Education too. I do understand why some people uh, you kind of really look up to the Confederacy. That's what they know. That's what they've been told. And if you've only been told a certain part of the story without the full aspect of the story, um, it, it makes sense that you are somewhat ignorant the head and not necessarily the heart. Um, if we were in Germany, would we have a Hitler high school? It would have never happened, right? So why do we think it's okay to have certain high schools, uh, Forest, Nathan B. Forrest uh, High School? You know, it's crazy. Um, you know, I, I'm a, a huge UGA fan, UGA alum. I give back to my alma mater. But um, we think about some of the challenges that we face, uh, not only just at that institution, but all institutions, right? I remember I was asked to give a presentation at the American Society of Public Administration at the annual conference. It's a presidential panel. And it was in Atlanta, maybe in 2017, 2016. And I prepared my remarks, and I wanted to kind of go there. So I went there. I said, the Richard B. Russell 
federal courthouse. What message are we sending to African-Americans and other people of color by naming the federal courthouse after someone who was a segregationist? And I talk about, does that reinforce criminal justice or criminal just us? We asked Brian and John their thoughts about this moment. They've been studying the police for years, and now it's all anyone can talk about. Is it really different this time? I'm ambivalent. Uh, I, I do feel like, like the level of energy, the level of focus, the penetration of these issues in the American public, and you know, the if you've seen the polling numbers about you know the percentage of Americans who think that there are problems with the police or think that the police um, engage in racist behavior, um, are, are they're very high right now. Um, and in that sense, I think it's different. And I think there's a level of intense focus and desire for change that that really exceeds anything that we saw even um, in the summer of 2014 in the wake of, of the killings of Michael Brown and, and Eric Gardner. 70-year-old legislators focused on the problems of policing year in and year out, right? Um, but I think your generation, people who are growing up and living through these protests and, you know, saw the George Floyd video at a very important time in your life, um, you know, you may be able to keep the focus better um, than people a generation or two above you. Um, I think it's just people have to choose to make this their life's issue. This isn't a moment. It's a movement. I am one who believes that justice is infinite. It's not a limit supply of justice, right? So if another group gets justice, doesn't mean you get less justice, right? But it seems like that's the kind of, kind of logic that's behind a lot of these things that we're having right now. If we provide more of this to them, then that means less to us. I don't think any of us asked to be here, right? We were born into this space, but the challenge we have to be willing to accept is how do we leave this space better than what we found it? We've been handed a baton. How do we advance? So when we pass it back off, in a better position to win the race. That's the opportunity that we have. It will require individual compassionate action and collective compassionate action. Because right now, what we see taking place, we have passion from the public. We have a committed purpose to kind of make some change from public organizations like policing. But what seems to be lacking somewhat is the political will. If we can get those three streams to converge, change can happen. Meaningful, lasting change can happen. If you like our work, check us out at The Finch Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can learn more about what we do on our new website at thefinchpodcast.com. On the next Extempore, we are going to be talking about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. For now, stay safe, everybody. This was Extempore 2. Fighting since 2014 has pushed the Arab world's most poverty-stricken nation to the brink of disaster. To the Middle East now, where the chaos in Yemen has suddenly expanded into a dangerous regional war with Iran on one side, Saudi Arabia on the other. The humanitarian crisis in the world is unfolding before our eyes, and the United Nations now says that 14 million people are on the brink of starvation. The United States is a key player in actively causing the famine right now.